You know, the first time I uh, presented some of the information that you're going to hear today was ac actually at a secular psychiatric conference uh, where there was a lot of physicians, psychologists coming together for continuing medical education. And uh, as was mentioned uh, earlier, our, our approach to depression and anxiety is indeed comprehensive. And there's a lobe of the brain that tends to be one of the most, well, it, it is the most neglected lobe in all of psych psychology and psychiatry today. Does anyone know what that lobe is? It's the frontal lobe that's neglected. Now, why is it neglected so much? Uh, actually, the studies show that if we're going to really find a cure for depression and anxiety, that's the lobe that needs to be improved the most. It's the control center of the brain. And uh, when we look at uh, spec scans and circulation activity, we see a marked depression, um, at least 40% circulation activity going down in the frontal lobe of the brain. But uh, even Guyton's textbook of physiology today states that the frontal lobe is the seat of spirituality, morality, and the will. Why is it neglected so much? I think one of the, there's probably multiple reasons, but one of the primary reasons is uh, what the data shows in regards to religious beliefs and specialties in medicine today. Which specialty do you think has the least religious people and the, the most agnostics and atheists go into it? It is psychiatry and psychology. Now, of course, that's not everybody. Uh, there's not everyone that fits that category, but I think that's one of the reasons why the frontal lobe is neglected because those individuals obviously don't necessarily identify with spirituality, morality, and the will, and so they just tend to leave it aside, but yet this is an area where we could produce the greatest benefit. So it was somewhat a bold step. I realized where the people were in the audience that I was speaking to, but it was somewhat of a bold step for me to um, give the data here on the psychological good life and how we can really get that frontal lobe um, to be enhanced. And by the way, the name of, my, of that phrase, the psychological good life, and its association with what I'm about ready to speak about was actually given by two secular psychologists, Dr. Um, Peterson from University of Michigan and Dr. Selegman from the University of Pennsylvania. First of all, a little bit of background. It wasn't mentioned in the um, presentation that um, I'm the president of Weimar Institute, which is fine. A lot of people don't realize um, that Weimar even exists or that I'm associated with it. Uh, but uh, Weimar Institute's motto is to heal a hurting world physically, mentally, emotionally, socially, and spiritually. And there are some great things happening uh, on that campus. We not only have a good pre-med program, theology program, education program, but the state of California nursing board um, actually stated that we are the first alternative medicine um, state-approved nursing program in the state. So we have our first cohort of RN students going through. They'll be able to sit for the boards, but they're going to learn more than traditional RN work. They're going to be learning a lot of nutrition, health principles, and some things that we're talking about today and how to make that bridge and helping the frontal lobe 
to be uh, improved. And uh, also we're doing a lot of research um, there, as uh, mentioned. In fact, um, it's very rare for pre-med students to get published in the medical literature, but uh, our pre-med students are getting actually published in peer-reviewed medical publications with the data that is being um, uh, done right there at Weimar and, and being analyzed and the world is starting to um, take um, notice. Uh, so what is it uh, that is the psychological good life? Well, I'll just come right out with it. According to Peterson and Seligman, it is self-control. You'll see why they state that. But what is the definition of self-control? It's the ability to keep ourselves from acting on our behavioral or emotional impulses. And this is actually a giant topic today. Don't think this is just a minor topic. Uh, because the most quoted researcher in all of the world right now is Dr. Baumeister from Stanford. What is his research on? Self-control. That's how he's become the most quoted researcher. And he states self-control failure is central to nearly all the personal and social problems that currently plague citizens of the modern developed world. And when we take a look at it, indeed, that can be the case. You know, a, a number of years ago, I'm going to start uh, uh, revealing, uh, in a way, how old I am. But I remember after my residency in, uh, in, uh, in internal medicine, uh, I had a lot of interest in healthy lifestyle um, things. And I learned as much as I could about nutrition and its role with a lot of the internal medicine diseases. And one of the reasons why I had an interest is because I had a father who changed his lifestyle when I was growing up as a teenager and I saw a new dad emerge physically as well as emotionally and spiritually. So I knew there was something uh, to do with what you put into your body and what you do with your body and a change in health that can take place. And so I was really thrilled um, to see a conference come across uh, my desk uh, called the First International Conference on the Elimination of Coronary Artery Disease. The year was 1991. Uh, my oldest uh, boy was um, about five months old and it was his first flight. We weren't going to miss it. We flew from Dallas to Tucson, Arizona to go to this great conference. And there were a lot of speakers there talking not about how heart disease can be prevented but how it can be reversed through diet and lifestyle measures. You know, Dr. Ornish's um, lifestyle heart trial had just been published not long ago. But there are a number of other researchers there, Caldwell Esselstein from the Cleveland Clinic and Dr. Berenson from Louisiana and all of these um, uh, great researchers. And when I was sitting there, I was thinking, this is incredible that the leading physicians um, throughout the world that were gathered there are going to take this information and with all of the publication that's taking place, how different is my life going to be as an internal medicine physician 25 years later? Because the number one reason that I was seeing patients in a hospital setting was congestive heart failure. And the number one reason for that was coronary artery disease. And I thought, when heart disease isn't even in the top 10 causes of death in 25 years, it's going to be a very different practice. Well, those 25 years have elapsed, and guess what the number one cause of death still is? 
it's heart disease. And congestive heart failure is a still a common cause of admission. Now, is that because those researchers were not giving us accurate information? No, they were giving us very accurate information. In fact, we now know that their information is more true than what it was presented then. So what's the problem? The problem is actually implementing that information into our daily life. And what is inhibiting that? It's called lack of self-control. So the number one cause of heart disease today is actually lack of self-control. When we take a look at cancer, which is the number two cause of death, and Harvard says if we put everything we knew into practice about cancer, we'd be able to pre prevent almost 80% of cancers. We need to recognize that even uh, cancer is, a, um, is um, uh, often brought about by lack of self-control. Diabetes, is that going up or down in our country? It is going dramatically up. Do we know how to prevent this disease? and even reverse it through diet and lifestyle measures? Absolutely, but it's still going up. So what's the problem? Lack of self-control, sexually transmitted diseases. I just saw a report today that sexually transmitted diseases are going up dramatically in this country. Chlamydia is at an all-time high. Gonorrhea is up there. What's the issue? Lack of self-control, stroke. Uh, still far too common, often caused by lack of self-control. Alcoholism, by definition, is lack of self-control. Murder rates are a major issue, and uh, of course, you know, the media likes to, you know, banter around this gun control issue and get all heated arguments about it. It's very clear that no matter which side you are on the equation on that one, you'll make at most a 10% difference. Um, in death rates, but in reality, what's being neglected is the real cause of murder, which is lack of self-control. Uh, you don't hear them talk about that. Rape is also a major problem in our country. Lack of self-control. When we know the principles of mentally healthful living and we still have depression and anxiety, what's the issue? Lack of self-control. Uh, and so we could go on to unwanted pregnancy, many adulteries and divorces, unemployment, financial failure, relationship problems, and other ad addictions like technology addiction. Uh, yeah, we could, uh, you know, this is only a partial list, but you can see why Baumeister is correct and why he's being asked to speak in so many places. Uh, you know, we actually uh, we run an emotional intelligence summit that's also a continuing medical education summit that actually Loma Linda uh, sponsors the CME credits and we uh, submit everything uh, to them and they have some of their professors um, there as well. But um, uh, we tried to get Dr. Baumeister at um, our last conference and uh, when you're the most quoted researcher in the world, it costs about $40,000 for a talk. So we actually got someone else to talk about self-control under extreme circumstances who actually gave a better talk. Uh, it was an, an exceptional talk and it cost us far less than that. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, Restoration hasn't had to pay me um, those, those type of fees to get, <laughs> get me here tonight. Uh, interestingly, lack of self-control is something that the Bible also talks about. Paul said, for I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I what? I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin 
that dwells in me. And then after completing this discourse, Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. By the way, that term was repeated in that song that we just heard. Amazing grace that saved a what? A wretch like me. And that term wretched is used only one other place in scripture. Anyone remember where it's at? It's actually the message to the last church. So Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? By the way, there are some Christians out there, even some theologians, who've stated that the issues that Paul faced are just going to be faced by everybody. That's part of ordinary Christian living. Paul did not want ordinary Christians to be wretched. <laughs> that wasn't his goal. And if you'd read the next verse in the next chapter, you'd recognize that. Uh, but nonetheless... Uh, this wasn't God's plan for us to be wretched. But the message to the last church, these are the words of Christ himself. He said, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are what? You're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Why are you naked? What don't you have? Actually, do not have the clothing of the righteousness of Christ. So this even can touch on salvational issues when we are wretched. So what is the secret to avoiding this wretchedness? First, I'm going to give you the secular, the Baumeister and some others um, uh, research on this, the secret of avoiding it. And then I'm going to give you the fail-safe method. What was the subtitle of today's talk? It was uh, something along that line of the fail-safe method of having comprehensive self-control. What is, uh, the secular researchers tell us the answer is temperance. By the way, that's a word that used to be around in the 1800s and 1900s. It kind of faded away, but now it's being resurrected and it's being talked about by secular individuals. Temperance is the solution. Temperance is moderation in the things that are healthy and abstinence in the things that are unhealthy. But strict temperance requires what type of self-control? Comprehensive self-control. Now, now let me just mention that every human being that I know of and everyone that's come to our program has selective self-control in certain areas. It may not be the same areas, but they are going to have selective self-control in certain areas of their life. I remember, um, well, let's just name someone who's very famous in the state of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger. How did he get famous? He got famous first from building up big muscles. Does it take self-control to build up those big muscles? Meticulous self-control. But an area of his life where it was more important for him to have self-control, when his maid was cleaning the house, he lacked it. And he lost the love of his life due to not having what type of self-control? Comprehensive self-control. So we're not into selective self-control so much, as although that can be good in certain areas. But what we're really wanting to live that psychological good life is comprehensive self-control. 
Now, the secular psychologists, this is their quote, in our endeavor to measure this class of strengths, we have found that among people in the mainstream developed world, strengths of temperance are infrequently endorsed and seldom praised. They're actually amazed that because this is so well connected, as you'll see, to the psychological good life, they're amazed that people don't talk about this. They said in the Western world, no one's really talking about um, strengths of temperance. It's not being endorsed and it's seldom praised. Regardless, the strengths of temperance are very important and they have a rich array of positive consequences for what? The psychological good life. This comes from a book that reviews a lot of these studies called Character, Strengths, and Virtues. So in the last 15 years, self-control has been studied a lot. And in order to study something, first you have to measure it. And there actually is a self-control test that you can take. Now, I'm not going to give you the entire test, but I want you to see some examples of this. And I'd like you to, if someone answers very much or five, see if you can figure out whether that would be high self-control or low self-control. The first one is I have a hard time breaking bad habits. If you have a hard time breaking bad habits, what would that be? Low self-control. I do certain things that are bad for me if they are fun. What is that? Low self-control. I have trouble saying no. Low self-control. I am good at resisting temptation. That's high self-control. Getting up in the morning is hard for me. Low self-control. I blurt out whatever is on my mind. Low self-control. I spend too much money. Low self-control. I keep everything neat. High self-control. I get carried away by my feelings. Low self-control. I do many things on the spur of the moment. Low self-control. I don't keep secrets very well. Low self-control. I often interrupt people. Low self-control. I am always on time. High self-control. I'm not easily discouraged. High self-control. I eat healthy foods. High self-control. Pleasure and fun sometimes keep me from getting work done. Low self-control. I have trouble concentrating. Low self-control. Sometimes I can't stop myself from doing something even if I know it is wrong. Low self-control. I'm able to work effectively towards long-term goals. High self-control. So you get an idea of what they're measuring, what these um, psychologists are measuring. And it turns out when they've measured those things and then they look at the spectrum of the results and the people and study them over time, they have found out that people with high self-control have better personality adjustment. They have higher self-worth. They're better at controlling their anger. They have fewer symptoms of somatization, obsessive compulsive patterns, depression, anxiety, hostile anger, phobic anxiety, paranoid ideation, and psychotic tendencies. In addition, they're more conscientious, they're more emotionally stable, they make better relationship partners, they get along better with other people, they're more accommodating of others, not less accommodating. They report more satisfying relationships and they have better adjustment in those relationships. In addition, they have better family cohesiveness, less interpersonal conflict, better perspective and better empathy of others. They don't wallow in their own personal reactions to other people's problems. They have more secure interpersonal attachments. They manage money well. They spend less 
and they save more. Those things are so crucial that I would, I'm just guessing in a group this size and is, uh, that we have a student body here, that many of you are single. And I would suggest that before you consider a serious relationship, slip your proposed partner a self-control test and uh, <laughs> uh, see how well they do. Uh, in fact, you might want to take that yourself and show, uh, show them the results as well. Uh, but actually, how successful your marriage is is going to be uh, largely dependent on how well they do on those tests. Now, children can actually also develop self-control. And uh, this is something that interesting we could go into. But children with better self-control are more popular with other children. They're not less popular. They score higher on SAT scores 10 years later. In fact, this was in six-year-olds with self-control. It was a very accurate predictor of what they were going to score on their SATs at age 16. Displaying self-control by the age of 11 is highly correlated with successful employment throughout participants' lives. Participants with low self-control experience three times as many months of being unemployed over 22 years when compared with those with high self-control. And you can see that was published just this year in Psychological Science, uh, April 2015. Now back to the secular researchers, some interesting statements they make. In the course of daily life, in spite of their best efforts at self-control, people inevitably sin and transgress, at least on rare occasion. Now again, these are secular people, they're not religious, but notice what they're saying happens. People sin and transgress, at least on rare occasion, despite their best efforts at self-control. Do you think we could generally agree with that statement? I think we could generally agree with it, but here's what they state. People with high self-control score relatively low in shame and high in shame-free guilt when that happens. Individuals with high self-control are inclined to take responsibility for their transgressions rather than externalizing blame or minimizing the importance of the transgression. In short, having done wrong, high self-control people are inclined to focus on the effects of their behavior and in so doing are inclined to do what? Make amends. In contrast, low self-control individuals are more apt to experience painful feelings of shame and an emotion that often provokes two things, defensiveness and denial rather than what? Repair and redemption. So what this means is, is that if you have high self-control, over time, you're going to become a better person. If you have low self-control, you're not gonna become a better person over time. In fact, chances are you're gonna be actually become a worse person given enough time. Now the secular researchers also told us this. They, they took a look, I should say, at the drawbacks of self-control. You know, when you're studying character strengths, sometimes it's good to study it like, you know, um, maybe vitamin D, for instance. Vitamin D has a lot of good things, but we know that you can get too much vitamin D, and then there can be some consequences that result from that. And so, are there drawbacks for those that are very high in the self-control category? Here's what their research showed. There's no scientific studies anywhere demonstrating any undesirable consequences of high self-control. In fact, Tangney tested for curvilinearity to see if excessive self-control or over-control might produce negative consequences, but no negative patterns were found. 
They state, although in our society there may, exi may exist a stereotype of an over-controlled person, one who is easily restrained, cautious, uptight, and not spontaneous, we see no evidence that self-control is to be blamed. So in other words, if you have those things, it's not due to too much self-control, it's due to other problems. <laughs> then here's kind of the sad statements that they make. Relatively little is known about how self-control is acquired and strengthened. This topic must be regarded as a high priority for further research, especially in view of the many benefits that self-control confers. So they set us up by saying, this is the psychological good life. This is going to produce so many positive consequences in your life, but we don't know a whole lot about how to take one someone with low self-control and turn them into a person with high self-control. Now, Baumeister has gotten um, publicity because he's actually shown us some things about it. Uh, most acts of self-control involve overcoming some incipient response to the immediate situation in order to pursue some greater long-term benefit. Hence, the ability to transcend the immediate situation is crucial. People who live only in the present moment are unlikely to exhibit good self-control, whereas future-mindedness will facilitate self-regulation. And so this is one of the reasons why you don't want to just live in the present. In fact, there's a pop psychology out there that's closely associated with the mindfulness and meditation group that is trying to get people to just live in the present sort of stuff. And what they're saying is people that are just focused in on the present are not going to really have good self-control. You have to have future-mindedness. In order to have future-mindedness, that's one of the reasons why we want to enhance the frontal lobe. You need to have... Um, you know, there's a word in scripture that's equated with positive future-mindedness. What is that word? It's actually hope. And in order to have hope, uh, you have to have that frontal lobe function. Now, where Baumeister has had his research is researching bright lines. He says people need bright lines. These really help with self-control. What is bright line? Zero tolerance is a bright line. Total abstinence with no exceptions anytime. He says to have those type of zero tolerance policies help with self-control. If you believe that the rule is sacred, a commandment from God, the unquestionable law of a higher power, then it becomes an especially bright line. In fact, Baumeister, who's not from a religious uh, background at all, in researching bright lines, he actually had atheists who were going to take a very difficult test where there was lots of opportunities for cheating. Um, he had them actually recite the Ten Commandments before taking the test. And he found that none of them cheated after doing that. Now he had a control group that would cite the titles of their 10 most favorite books before taking the test, and there was widespread cheating on, on that test. And so uh, uh, he talks about the advantages of these bright lines. In fact, uh, there's a book uh, that he's written called Rediscovering the Greatest Human Strength, Willpower. And so bright lines can help. Establishing worthy goals is important. And I'll just tell you, since I deal with the, the most severely depressed and anxious people, um, there are many people that come to our program, and I'll ask them what their goals are, and they say they have no goals. Now, what do I say after that? I say, what did your goals used to be before you thought you couldn't accomplish them? 
because what happens is people, when they're growing up, they do have goals. They do have things that they would like to be or like to do. And then they think that it's going to be impossible for them to do that. And after having the disappointment, they think it's just better not to have any goals. And so establishing worthy goals that they might be high, but at least achievable can definitely help in self-control. Enhancing the frontal lobe does this. We do this by slowing down the limbic system in overdrive. And there can be music, there can be, we talked about one of the ways of enhancing it this morning. Uh, that's far more powerful than the meditation techniques, which is utilizing the science of prayer. Uh, but um, in going on, uh, the Old Testament also talked about self-control. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, says a proverb, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. A religious writer um, in a devotional book, My Life Today, commented on that text and says, he has conquered self, the strongest foe man has to meet. The highest evidence of nobility in a Christian is self-control. He who can stand unmoved amid a storm of abuse is one of God's heroes. He who has learned to rule his spirit will rise above the slights, the rebuffs, the annoyances to which we are daily exposed and these will cease to cast a gloom over his spirit. It is God's purpose that the kingly power of sanctified reason, controlled by divine grace, shall bear sway in the lives of human beings. He who rules his spirit is in possession of this power. The man or woman who preserves the balance of the mind when tempted to indulge passion stands higher in the sight of God and heavenly angels in the most renowned general that ever led an army to battle into victory. And so uh, quite a, a statement there, preserving the balance of the mind when tempted to indulge passion. In other, in other words, letting that frontal lobe be the one that is ruling. Well, now I'm going to tell you the fail-safe solution to comprehensive self-control, just like I told that whole group of secular psychiatrists and psychologists a year and a half ago when I gave this presentation. And by the way, I'll just mention to you, I was surprised at the reception that I received after that. It was a very quiet reception afterwards, but many very famous psychologists, some who've written books, I know one was uh, a secular author, SOS for Emotions, um, uh, Lynn Clark uh, and others um, came up and said that they'd been going to psychiatry conferences their whole life and had never heard anything like this, but this message needs to be repeated around the world. It is the secret and they, they sense that um, uh, in that um, a presentation given to that secular audience. So how do we develop the fail-safe solution? All of those things that I mentioned to you are important. I'm not um, de-emphasizing those things. Um, they do have their role and they are very important. But now we want to touch on the fail-safe method. What young men and women need is Christian heroism. To rule the spirit means to keep self under discipline. And notice how this is done. God's abounding love and presence in the heart will give the power of self-control and will mold and fashion the mind and character. So the amazing thing about it is we call it self-control, but it's not actually self-control. 
the power for this comes outside of us, not from within. And notice the statement, God's abounding love and presence in the heart will give the power of self-control. The grace of Christ in the life will direct the aims and purposes and capabilities into channels that will give moral and spiritual power, power which the youth will not have to leave in this world, but which they can carry with them into the future life and retain through the eternal ages. Christ himself said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have what, one to another? Love. Notice the commentary here, if we would be true lights in the world, we must manifest the loving, compassionate spirit of Christ. To love as Christ loved means that we must what? Practice self-control. It means that we must show unselfishness at all times and in all places. That's the comprehensive nature. And so we can actually open up our hearts to receiving this love by being unselfish. So whenever there's a problem with self-control, it's a little red flag there. Selfishness is still there. And if we are willing to put our all on the altar and open our hearts and minds to his love, we will have the key to self-control. The key to self-control is self-sacrifice. And it's a self-sacrificing love. What does the Bible call that love? It's called agape love. True transformative healing is actually dependent on love. Love can change you, and it can change the world. Not erotic love, romantic love, or even brotherly love, as good as those are in their time and place. It's a love that human nature totally lacks. And that's why it has to come from outside of us. The Bible calls it agape the world calls it altruistic love. What will happen when we have this? It means that we must scatter around us kind words and pleasant looks. These cost the giver nothing. They leave behind a precious fragrance. Their influence for good cannot be estimated. Not only to the receiver, but to the giver they are a blessing, for they react upon him. Now notice this profound statement. Genuine love is a precious attribute of where? heavenly origin which increases in fragrance as what in proportion as it is what dispensed to others so not only can we get this love by self-sacrifice and opening our hearts to his grace but we can get more of it and we can get more of it and even more of it how do we get more by dispensing that love to others. And this is where that loving service aspect of things is very crucial in the development of this. Well, I'm going to close with two examples in self-control that met in the Bible. Contrasts. Paul before Nero, how striking the contrast. The countenance of the monarch, that's Nero bearing the shameful record of the passions that raged within. What does that tell us? That tells us sometimes you can look at someone's face and realize there's nothing good going on in there. And there's not really self-control going on in that head either. And so you could just look at Nero and see it. The countenance of the prisoner telling the story of a heart at peace with God and man. 
The results of opposite systems of education stood that day contrasted. The results of opposite systems of what? Education. A life of unbounded self-indulgence. Who was that? Nero. And a life of entire self-sacrifice. Who was that? Paul. Here were the representatives of two theories of life. All absorbing selfishness, which counts nothing too valuable to be sacrificed for momentary gratification. And self-denying endurance, ready to give up life itself, if need be, for what? For the good of others. And so we're told the souls to be purified and ennobled and made fit for the heavenly courts. There are two lessons to be learned. Self-sacrifice and self-control. And by the way, I think those two characteristics are going to be present in everyone that actually lives eternally. It's going to be a lot of differences, but those two things are going to be there. So for physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health to be comprehensive and lifelong, it actually demands the gospel to be complete. And this is something that a lot of people, you know, this is... Um, basically the reason for the institution that you're at today. You know, we're dealing with health things, with medical things, but in reality, in order for that transformation to be true and complete, it actually requires something outside of us that we can't necessarily provide. We can introduce them to it, but it has to come from God. Now, this Solemn statement, the strongest bulwark of vice in our world is not the iniquitous life of the abandoned sinner or the degraded outcast. I can tell you in my field of gastroenterology that I practiced for years, some of the most despicable things would be said by nurses and other caregivers to the alcoholic who's dying of cirrhosis of the liver, and we get rid of his hepatic encephalopathy enough to send him out the door, and we tell him to not drink another drop, and he comes back having drunk some more, and even in worse shape. And it's like, why are we spending all this time with this guy? You know, trying to you know, spare him from death when he's not even helping himself. And so we think this is the kind of the worst type of person. We're actually told that's not the worst person. What is it? It's the life that otherwise appears virtuous, honorable, and noble, but in which one sin is fostered, one vice indulged. Why is that worse? Because the difference between good and great is exponential. This person will pass to their grave and be thought to be a good person, but they could have been a great person. They could have been an Apostle Paul. They could have been a Daniel. They could have been a Joseph. They could have been transformative. So I request for you today to consider and choose comprehensive self-control in your life. There's no downside to that. Even, I mean, the, the research hasn't shown one downside. Choose real self-sacrifice. Give yourself to God. What was Paul's solution? He said it in three words. I die daily. That willingness to put all on the altar of sacrifice and be willing to even to give up life itself for the good of others. So in the process of healing a hurting world that I talked about, Weimar Institute, 
It turns out people need to hear truth that goes against their human nature to feel the need of the true gospel to fully incorporate it in their life. That's one of the advantages of the health message. In virtually every disease state, every specialty that's being treated in this hospital, you can actually find out there's something in that person's life that they could be enhanced by putting a lifestyle or a nutrition plan into practice, but some of that plan is gonna go against their human nature. You know, people that come to our program, I can tell you, it's always a different three set of things, but 97% of what we tell them to do, they say, I can do this, this is simple, this is great. But there's always about three things where they say, mm-mm, not me, not gonna do that. And what the, thing, the things that they say they're not gonna do, those are the things that are most important for them to actually improve in brain health. But yet, uh, and this is why the spiritual part of the program is so important, because the only way we can go against our human nature and our limited vision is actually taking hold of a higher power. They need the message of health and the gospel, it turns out, to be truly healed. And the beauty of medical missionary work is that they'll not just be healed now, they'll actually be healed for eternity. So I'll close with the words of Paul as he was passing the baton to Timothy. This was days before he was beheaded, his sentence given by Nero. And he said to Timothy, for God gave us a spirit not of what? Fear. Fear but of power and of love. And the type of word that he used was the self-sacrificing love that we're talking about that has to come from outside of us. And what else? Self-control. Shall we bow our heads? Father in heaven, we thank you that you pioneered the way in regards to medical missionary work and your healing ministry. And we thank you that this institution was set aside to help make man whole. But we recognize that we don't have the power to make man completely whole, but you do. But we have the ability to introduce them to the great physician and the one that can imbue them with your grace and your love. And so, Lord, I thank you for this, but I also uh, pray for each one here. Perhaps there is someone here tonight that has been struggling with comprehensive self-control. They've had self-control in some areas of their life, but other areas they know, just like Paul wrote about, that they've been doing things that are not best for them, and they've been not doing things that would be best for them. And perhaps now they have a clear insight in how they can have that comprehensive self-control, putting all on the altar of sacrifice laid. And they would like to just notify you of that decision that they've made tonight for comprehensive self-control, a life of entire self-sacrifice in dispensing your love to others by raising their hand at this time to you. Lord, you see the hands that have been raised that are choosing the path of entire self-sacrifice for the good of others and opening 
their hearts and minds to receiving more and more of your love as they dispense it to others. And we thank you that you indeed have that power and we can trust you to implant that love in our hearts that we can be transformed and be a transformative agent to others. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.